I want to invite you to open up your Bible, Bible you brought, Bible that's there in the pew, to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes is right after the book of Proverbs. And as you're opening up to that, we all long, in some form or fashion, we all um, look at some point in our lives for significance, for purpose. And, and whenever that time comes, whether it's intentional, we pursue it, or we stumble upon that idea of significance and purpose in our lives, we come to the realization that we're not the only person, we're not the first to ever search for the meaning of life. And this morning, as you're opening up to that book, I want to introduce you to a man who was also on this search. It's the story of a son of David, Solomon, once king over all Jerusalem. And his story is revealed in many places, but in particular, we're going to be looking at it through this book called Ecclesiastes. And as you're finding it, you'll notice it's in a part of the Bible, the part of the library known as the wisdom literature. And the wisdom literature has got very, it's got a different flavor to it, different style of writing in the various books that are in there. And Ecclesiastes in particular is a book that many have become familiar with in the 60s. For those of you who were around back then, from a band called The Birds. And they had a hit song, Turn, 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 right? You remember this? To everything, there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. You see what I did there? I got you to sing rather than me. <laughs> Ecclesiastes is how most people have come into this book, and, and chapter 3 is the chapter that tends to stand out um, and in some ways almost stands out in a way that skews our understanding of the whole book. But we'll get to that a little later down the road. What you're going to find in this book is that this, is the, this book represents the musings of a pilgrim who becomes a preacher. And what is compelling about Ecclesiastes is, I think as we read it, where you're going to find, even today, that it is as much relevant today in the 21st century as it was back when Solomon first penned these words. Uh, for me, Solomon's quest in, this, in these pages represents every person's journey of discovery. But before we dive in, one of the other things I really want to highlight for you, I want, if you don't know this or don't recognize this, is while Solomon's quest represents every person's journey, why Ecclesiastes is unique because Solomon's grand and costly experiment, his exploration is unlike any, anyone else who's ever walked the earth. Because when we talk about significance, purpose, the meaning of life, our resources are limited, right? We, we, uh, we don't have nearly an inexhaustible wealth of time, capital, or other resources at our disposal. When we ask about the significance, the purpose, the meaning of life, not only are our resources limited, our experience is also limited by our position. And I don't mean to be condescending. As successful as many of us, all of us may be, even though we may achieve positions of great influence where we oversee and manage large inventories or staff, you and I in this room are unlikely to reach the heights of power and authority, say, like of a Bill Gates or a Warren Buffett. Uh, as far as I know, none of us will ever be president or a king. Solomon, on the other hand, if you don't know this, was the king at the greatest moment of Israel's history. At a time when Israel was, in effect, <clears throat> the only world superpower. And as a result, the wealth and resources at Solomon's disposal were massive. In addition, the scriptures tell us that Solomon was blessed with a measure of wisdom quite unlike anyone else in all history, save maybe Jesus Christ. His knowledge and excellence 
straddled every academic field. The Bible records that Solomon wrote thousands of proverbs and songs as well as mastered the realm of natural science. His, we're told his IQ was so off the charts that kings, even the queen of Sheba, came to test and marvel at his genius. So Solomon represents the epitome of human achievement. He truly was the person who had it all. Wisdom, success, fame, achievement, riches. Solomon was the most interesting man in the world. <laughs> that went over so much better in this service than it did in the first service. Just saying. <sighs> Whew, okay. <laughs> he was. You'll see that as we go through this book, and it'll, it'll, you'll want to go back and read the historical books to get even more texture to his life. What you're going to hear in just a moment as we read this first chapter, is Solomon was uniquely qualified to squeeze meaning out of life in some areas where you and I would not, do not have the means. So with that said, let's hear a little bit from Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless, Everything is meaningless. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the north and turns to the south. Round and round it goes ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which anyone can say, look, this is something new? It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. There is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. A chasing after the wind. What is twisted cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I thought to myself, look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and of folly, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kings in the ancient Near East, Solomon's time, often promoted their greatness by heralding their conquests and their deeds 
through royal inscriptions. And, and what we have right at the start is in, in Ecclesiastes is Solomon mirroring this trend. But what we notice right away, if you have those Bibles still open, if you were paying attention, is that Solomon isn't so much bragging about himself as he is sharing his frustration. Solomon reveals his prior determination to apply the greatness and wisdom he has attained for the sake of solving one great mystery. He has dedicated himself to a task, a burden, a question that he understands God to have given to all persons, to challenge them. And the question is this, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? It's an important question. Because after all, this is the question that drives us, is it not? The answer to this question is the goal most of us are pursuing. Solomon is asking if you add everything up, everything up we accomplish in life, and by a life I mean a good life, what have we gained? What do we profit from all of our effort? When you're five, you start going to school. Some 13 years later, you graduate. You go out and you go to more school and get more degrees. And at some point, you get a job and then you work for some 50 or so years. Did you know that by the time that most of us retire, we've spent some 90,000 hours working? 90,000 hours working. And Solomon is asking us to take an inventory of all those days, of all those weeks, of all those months, of all those years, to consider the large deposit we're making in terms of those 90,000 hours of work and to imagine that we're putting it, bringing it before an assessor and asking how much it's all worth. I mean, such a portfolio represents a lifetime of labor, right? Such a, a portfolio represents our best energies, our greatest efforts, and Solomon, the assessor, looks over all we've accomplished, all that we've done, and turns the question back on us. What do you have to show for all this? When all the costs are counted, when all the expenses are paid, what do we have left? Now, I don't know how you're feeling about this book, if you've ever read from Ecclesiastes before, or if you tend to skip over it, or after reading the first chapter, you hate it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a tough book because it, it, people have said literally to me out loud, this is just, it's just not scripture. It doesn't feel like scripture. And then you say it's in wisdom literature, and it's, it's like, this doesn't feel like wisdom. But what I want you to understand, this is so key as we go through this series, in the midst of, and, and this is going to be a book that's going to make us uncomfortable. We're going to have sort of a love-hate relationship. Right now it's probably more hate, but we will have a love-hate relationship with this book. What I want you to understand is the questions in Ecclesiastes are not the questions of an atheist or an agnostic. These are the questions of a believer. A believer who wants to keep faith honest. In a world that's not the way it's supposed to be, Solomon, in addressing the question of what is life about, is not so much asking what is true or the greater good, as much as he is wrestling with a much more practical issue. At the end of your life, after you've worked, played, accumulated, and loved, what remains? What lasts? What matters? Are we any further ahead than when we started. And you'll notice 
He doesn't keep us in suspense, does he? Right at the beginning of this book, Solomon tells us the ultimate value, the absolute worth of all of our blood, sweat, and tears. And the teacher's answer is startling and shocking. Nothing. Nothing. It's worth nothing. And in case that, again, cuts us to the quick, it gets worse because Solomon's question and answer applies to more than just the nine to five, 40 hour a week grind. He determines, as he said, and he's going to continue to examine not just our time at the office, but all that is done under heaven, everything that takes place under the sun. I applied my heart to seek and search, Solomon writes. And those two Hebrew words translated seek and search are significant. These synonyms represent two different kinds of searching. On the one hand, exploring in depth and on the other, canvassing far and wide. In other words, Solomon is concerned with both the detail and the breadth of life, the close-up and the wide-angle shot, the minutia and the context. And the expanse of this view enables Solomon to perceive something fundamental about the human condition. And he, he pounds it into us, and that fundamental truth about the human condition is, on its own, it's meaningless, meaningless. And in case you missed him saying it twice, he goes utterly meaningless. And in case you still didn't get it, he says everything is meaningless. Everything, everything adds up to nothing. The word that he again pounds into us for meaningless that's used here literally translates as vapor or breath. It doesn't happen a lot in Southern California, certainly not this time of year, but you know that experience when the temperature really drops and you stand outside and you exhale and you see your breath as a vapor, right? The vapor of your breath, you see it, it appears for a brief second and then it disappears. When you're a kid, that's like the coolest thing ever, right? Solomon wants us to have that picture in our mind because that for him, that picture is the sum total of our lives. Our lives are like the breath on a cold winter's day. Here for a moment, and then gone. Everything we labor for and toil after, Solomon declares, is fleeting. It's elusive. It's temporary. And as we're going to discover during this series, assuming you come back next week, and I don't say that kidding around, because you might be going, I think I'd like to spend my summer in something a little more cheerful than this book. But assuming you come back, you're going to see that it's not just in the first chapter, but it, throughout this book, the emptiness, the futility, the vanity of life is a repeated theme for Solomon. And because right from the outset, first chapter, he knows we're going to struggle with this answer. He gives us here two reasons right from the outset that he's going to build upon why everything is meaningless, why everything adds up to nothing. And the first Reason that he gives us in verses four through seven can be summarized this way. The more things change, the more they stay the same. It's almost as if Solomon wants to say to us right now, field trip, forget these walls and let's go on a hike. Let's go out into nature together. And Solomon takes us out into nature, picture the most beautiful scene that you can see, and he says, look around you. Look at the world around you. Notice, as we look around, the vicious cycles of nature Look at all the activity, lots of motion going on around us, and it's ultimately going nowhere. The sun rises, the sun sets, 
Each day begins and ends the same. The winds whirl and howl, and they blow this way and that, but there's no catching the wind. The river runs into the seas, and yet thanks to evaporation, the sea is never full. On and on it goes, and yet fundamentally, nothing changes. We see endless activity in nature with no resolution. And Solomon concludes, therefore, it is all meaningless. And if we think this is just Solomon, and we want to just write off one person's perspective, interesting to me that not with the same depth, not with the same <laughs> relentlessness, Paul, just about, about this idea of nature, makes a similar point. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, perceives a similar flaw running through the fabric of creation. When he writes in Romans that the whole creation has been subjected to futility, by the, word, by the way, using the same word as Solomon, the whole creation has been subjected to futility and longs for its redemption. You see, Solomon senses, and he wants us to see it, to perceive it as well, that there is a disturbing correlation between the vicious cycles imprinted into the very fabric of creation and the transitory nature of the human condition. And this is a word that's hard for us to hear, but it's a word that needs to penetrate because we live more than ever before in a cultural climate that repeatedly encourages us, challenges us, affirms us that the whole world revolves around us. We can make a difference. You and me, we ought to leave a legacy all it takes is education. All it takes is hard work. All it takes is persistence and creativity, and we can make our mark. We can leave our indelible stamp on this world. My daughter just graduated from high school, and um, I was at her high school graduation, and, and one of the speeches for graduation, one of the kids had quite a speech and, and I think I can summarize the content by the end. I mean, I think this, this typifies it. I mean, <laughs> finally, at the end of the speech, the student says, you know what, class of 2015, the world's not big enough for us. The world can't even handle what we're going to bring. My wife turned to me at that moment and said, boy, does he got a lot of growing up to do. <laughs> and she was Solomon in that moment. I get it. We've all been there, right? But that is typifying exactly what I'm saying and not in a, in a mean-spirited way, this idea that the world's not big enough for us. They can't handle what we're going to bring. And it's in that attitude that we almost propagate amongst ourselves as a species. Solomon asks, are we deceiving and deluding ourselves? Of what significance is one life, any life, Solomon asks, in the larger framework of the history of the world? Solomon says a generation is born. A generation grows and learns. Like nature, do you notice that our lives represent a lot of hurrying around? We're endlessly busy, aren't we? Think about all the repetitive activities in your life. And what I mean is, and I'm isolating right now, think about all the repetitive activities in your life, the huge amount of time that we spend just to keep things looking right. Just think about the amount of time you spend just to keep things looking right. Vacuuming your house, washing your car, mowing your lawn, just to make sure things look right. It never stops, right? One week rolls into the next and very little changes. Our garden is clear of weeds today, but in a week or in a month's time, we're out there again toiling the earth. The inbox of our email is as full today as it was yesterday. 
We finish our work day. We finish our work week. We empty the pallet on the production line or we finish our work on a project only to start a new assignment, only to receive more stock to be put away. We spend so much time trying to live the good life, to advance in our job, to have a family, to build a retirement fund, to pursue hobbies and experiences, to give back to others. But what is the net result? Where is the accumulated value? A generation is born, a generation grows, but Solomon points out a generation gets older. And yeah, there's lots of weddings and then lots of baby showers, and then lots of university bills, but then gradually a lot of doctor visits, and then a lot of funerals. A generation dies off, and a new generation is born, but nothing really changes. In the meantime, the world goes on as it always has. In every generation, the sun rises and the sun sets. An entire generation passes from the earth and the earth continues to revolve on its axis, unmoved. In the longer view of history, Solomon is, is, is causing, forcing us to see, take a view, a vantage point we don't normally take. In the longer view of history, we are just guests passing through who will be checking out soon, replaced by a new set of guests who will take our place and eventually we will not be remembered. Generations come and go, but the universe remains. Big old wheel keeps on turning. It goes round and round and never really ends up anywhere. The more things change, the more they actually stay the same. But Solomon doesn't stop there. He says it's meaningless not just because the more things change, the more they stay the same. He presses further. In verses 8 through 11, he adds to it. He says, despite all our labors, in the midst of all the ceaseless activity of the generations, here's the other reason why everything is meaningless. Because nothing ever satisfies us. Nothing ever satisfies us because it's all been done before Solomon writes, the eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. We're constantly on the go, right? We fill our lives with numerous experiences. We're bombarded with visual images, with an endless stream of sounds, and yet in the midst of all this, we're never truly satisfied. Despite all this, we want to see, we want to hear more. There's never enough. There's always one more acquisition to make. There's always just one more promotion to gain. There's always just one more credential or degree to earn. One more trip to take. One more tweet. One more song. One more movie. Just one more. One more. But nothing really changes, no matter what we see or hear. And this is a theme, again, that Solomon is going to return to and really scrutinize throughout his musings. His point, beloved, his point is our pursuit of fulfillment on our own is never complete. We're never fully or completely satisfied, and therefore, all this running around, all of our multitasking, all of our jam-packed calendars amount to nothing more than weariness and exhaustion. And we can all, whether we want to admit it or not, relate to that sense of weariness. We're all feeling it. Deep down, we know that Solomon is speaking truth here. Most of us have felt we exist in a perpetual state of weariness. But what Solomon wants to make sure we get is such tiredness is not as we often believe. We're this, we feel this weariness not just because we're doing a lot. It's not just physical exhaustion. 
Ours is an emotional, mental, a spiritual weariness born of the gap between anticipation and fulfillment. We eat, and yet hunger returns. We thirst, and we take a drink. But a couple of minutes, an hour later, we're thirsty again. Sex, money, fame, power, we want, we crave. It is never enough. I mean, think about it. Who makes a million and thinks, you know, I'll stop there. I'm happy with that. Who makes a million and says, I'll stop there. I'm good. And if some of us go, I would, I'd say that. If most of us, as we look, and I know this is my, I think the same thing. We look out into the world and we all live under this false assumption, right? And you can fill in whatever you want. If I only had more money, if I only had a better job, if I only had a, 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 a healthy family, if I only had the acceptance of others that accepting me as I am, if I only had the recognition that I deserve, if I only had, if I only had this, if I only had that, I would be content. My life would be complete. What's awesome and disturbing is as we make our way through this series, we're going to see that Solomon played that game. Whatever you want to say, if you just had, you'd be content. Solomon had the means, had the ability. He played that game, and he lost every time. He was never content. Beloved, the search for satisfaction is constant because our satisfaction is constantly frustrated by a gap we cannot fill on our own. And part of what feeds this frustration is our growing awareness like Solomon that we're just recycling experiences. We're drawing from the same old limited wells of human possibility. Solomon says, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. And we've all heard that phrase, right? History repeats itself. If you look at history, there's nothing you can do that hasn't already been done. But we like to convince ourselves we're different, right? The world isn't big enough for us. The world can't handle what we're going to bring. We like to convince ourselves we're different. Every new generation thinks that something new is happening. Every new generation. Solomon is just right, just right on here. Every new generation thinks that something new is happening. But Solomon says, but if you really step back, everything we do falls into some category of what has been done before. For each generation, the old seems to be new, Solomon writes, because we forget. We are ignorant of what came before. People have had mountains named after them, but later generations change the name. People write books that outlast them, but eventually those books go out of print and the authors are forgotten. I mean, I'll get even more personal, and maybe for some of you it's not as true, but for many of us, how far back can you go in your family history? How much do you know about the people that came before you, even in your own family? One of the more insightful things, and it's going to be heard differently in each service, is as we go through 50 years of grace, celebrating those 50 years, and again, I, I wish the services were not different, but unfortunately they have a sort of a different flavor to them. The people that seem to be more interested about what happened in the last 50 years are, surprise, surprise, the people who were there. 
They want to see the pictures. They want to hear the stories. That was their time. They remember. But and no disrespect intended for many of you, you're not showing up for breakfast at 8.30 to see those pictures or to hear those stories. And I get it. You don't care. They're not your stories. They're not your pictures. Solomon's spot on. He's calling out a truth here. And I said this in the first service. The first people who were in the first service, the people who were there, they're pissed off at you. <laughs> they are. They're angry that you do not value all that went into the 50 years that enable you to be here today. They're upset that you don't care, that you don't remember, that you don't want to know the story. And even in saying that to you, it's like, well, oh well. Just understand, a la the wisdom of Solomon, just understand one day you will be them. One day you will sit and you will remember the people, the things that happened, the stories and the pictures, and you'll want to talk and you'll be before a generation that says, so what? Who cares? Solomon is calling out a disturbing, a brutal truth that there is nothing new in nature. There is nothing new in human history. It's all be do been done before, and one day we too will be forgotten. What we've accumulated, all we've accumulated will be lost, forgotten, even as it is being repeated. Just as we don't remember the past, the future will not remember our present. Now, I, again, I don't know how you engage this, and I've been sitting it out, in it a little bit longer, but when I'm confronted with this, just the first chapter, what you know, Solomon calls out that I don't like, but it's true, when I hear this idea that my life is but a mist, that my life is but a vapor, that endeavor and legacy are ultimately beyond our grasp, I don't know about you, but my first inclination is to say, all right, guys, let's fight back. Let's push back against this truth. Let's get hearts and minds together. Come on, people, let's rally. Let's believe we can find a solution. Let's, I'm, I'm, I get the spirit of that kid at that graduation speech. Let's, we're bigger than this. We can overcome. And you see, what Solomon teases out here, this impulse in me, and maybe you don't have it, maybe you do, is Solomon teases out what really is the biggest religion in our lifetime. People get all bent out of shape. We had another conversation, you know, Pastor Dave last week, oh, Christianity's in decline, Islam's on the rise, this really, oh, you know. No, no, Solomon calls out the biggest, the greatest religion that exists in our world today across cultures, the biggest religion that blends into faith, Christianity, Judaism, all the other ones. And that greatest religion that, that rises to the surface as Solomon calls out this brutal truth is the cult of self-help. That's the greatest religion of our day. Don't kid yourself. The greatest religion of our day is our belief in self-help. I mean, my gosh, look later. There are blogs, books, turn on the TV, TV infomercials, newspapers and magazines, whole sections of bookstores overflowing with advice on how you can improve your situation in life. There are life coaches on call, available for you, life coaches who can help you to look within. Don't, this guy's a loser, man. He's never gonna go anywhere. Because the answer is positive thinking. If you just think positively, if you just self-actualize, if you just discover, discover the hidden you, then the world will become your oyster. To me, what I, I really appreciate in this first chapter is how Solomon almost anticipates 
Maybe it, maybe it was different in his day, but this cult of self-help, he beats us to the punch in the very first chapter. If our inclination is to say, we can fix this, he beats us to the punch because right from the get-go, he pulls out, do you notice this? His greatest asset, what he's most known for, his great wisdom, the greatest endowment of wisdom ever given to a mortal man, he lays it out and he says, okay. And he bursts our self-improvement bubble when he declares that human wisdom is not the answer. He says, wisdom, madness and folly. And what he means is, then I have applied myself to the knowledge of all aspects of life, but wisdom, madness, and folly is still a chasing after the wind. He says, you want self-help? Here's where self-help will lead you. With much wisdom comes much sorrow, because the more knowledge, the more grief. What Solomon is teasing out is the more we probe the questions, honestly, the more it leads to an increasing awareness of the problems as well as an increasing awareness of our human limitations. And Solomon says, because what is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. In other words, Solomon says, doesn't matter how much you self-actualize. It doesn't matter how much you think positively. It doesn't matter how much you discover your hidden you. There are things, many things we cannot understand. There are many things we cannot control. Human mortal effort alone will not resolve this problem, this tension. On our own, we are helpless to rectify our situation. We're helpless to make significant changes. Now again, I don't, I'll be, I don't like this book. But it's compelling to me in this first chapter. It's compelling that Solomon, even though I may not like it, he's nailing things. He is observing things with an incredible accuracy. And the fact that Solomon, who has got so much more at his, at his, at his disposal, resources, experience, that he's unable to change the world, that he's unable to fully understand why things are, it gives me pause. Now, I, I realize you didn't come here this morning to be depressed. I, you know, and you're, you know, this is one of those sermons that is a tough one. And like I said, if you come back, if you listen on the podcast, even though Ecclesiastes, and it will not stop, has this grinding relentlessness about it, even though it's got this frustrating sense of helplessness, you cannot just write Solomon off as some guy who's having a bad decade. Because one of the things I want you to get right here in the first chapter that you can't miss is despite his repeated insistence that everything is meaningless, Solomon never stops pressing forward. I mean, you read this first chapter and you think, why go on, man? Why don't you just slit your wrists right now? And yet Solomon keeps pressing forward. Notice something. He never ceases in searching for an answer. Solomon never fully rejects his topics. Please notice this. He never fully rejects his topics. He just can't fully embrace them. And that's why the application I have for you this week, what I want you to do, your, your kairos moment, if you will, is to embrace, to sit in this simple but hard message. To let Solomon challenge you, challenge us with questions we don't normally ask ourselves. I really want you this week, I really want you to dedicate, dedicate time, not just in the time that you're in this sanctuary. I really want you to reflect on what you heard Solomon say and ask, is Solomon crazy? Or is he tapping a nerve? And I want to challenge you not just to have this conversation in your head. 
I want to challenge you to have this conversation among the people around you. Talk to your spouse, talk to your kids, talk to your friends, talk to your neighbors about the very things that Solomon is bringing up. And more than just talking about it, I want to encourage you from this Sunday to next to listen to the conversation that others have. I'm encouraging you as your pastor to eavesdrop, not that you ever do on your own. Eavesdrop to the conversations you hear in the places you are. Listen to those conversations through the filter of Solomon. And in the conversations you have and in the conversations you listen to, listen and ask, what are our lives about? What drives us? What are we living for? Where do we search and find meaning and purpose in our lives? Like I said, I'm a, a bit ahead because I was preparing for this sermon, and I can't tell you the odd juxtaposition of Ecclesiastes and your daughter graduating from high school. <laughs> Emma, I'm so proud of you, but this is all meaningless. <laughs> Congratulations, but it's worth nothing. <laughs> I'm like, Lord, what in the world? I'm so proud. It's all it's got no value whatsoever, but all right. And as I've been wrestling, as I'm a step ahead in my own conversations about this and listening, and just to give you maybe a jump start, I, I'm starting to read Ecclesiastes, and maybe you will too as you go along with me. Ecclesiastes, I think, is a book that confronts in a very unique but a very honest way the various idols in our lives. And here's the funny thing about idols as we go through this book. The funny thing about idols is we don't often recognize them until they're pointed out. We're bowing down to them, we're worshiping them, we're centering our lives around them, but we don't, it's not, we don't even realize it until it's pointed out. And I'm going to tell you, in the weeks ahead, Solomon is going to take on our potential idols one by one. Riches and possessions, relationships and sex, food and drink, work and accomplishments. And that's only a small preview of where we are headed. But again, as you go through this and you think, why am I spending my summer here? Understand that Solomon isn't trying to bring us down as much as he is trying to get us to look up beyond ourselves. And understand, hear this, the various pursuits he's going to bring up in the next few weeks are not pointless. The various pursuits that he's going to bring up are not pointless. They aren't a complete waste of time. They just don't have ultimate meaning. They are not what life is ultimately about. And once again, if you're tempted to, and I, and I know it's, and it's an easy place to go to go, oh, that's Old Testament, I like New Testament, oh, Solomon, I, I prefer to not to listen to Solomon, I'm a Jesus person, I'm gonna listen to Jesus. Listen to what Solomon says. Because what Solomon says, Jesus tells us the very same thing. He may not spend as much time as Solomon is going to, he may not say it as bluntly, but do you remember when Jesus echoes Ecclesiastes in a very, very eerie way? Do you remember that moment when Jesus sounds quite a bit like Solomon? I won't tell you the context. So that way you can go and look for it later. But there's this moment, and it's a pretty profound moment, when Jesus says, he doesn't say, he asks a question. And the question is this, what will it profit a man to gain the whole world if he forfeits his soul? Oh, there's the question. That's Solomon's question. Beloved, I want to just warn you, rooting out the idols in our lives, rooting them out is going to be gut-wrenching. It's going to be gut-wrenching for us. There are going to be weeks when we're going to be like, oh, not a problem, but there's going to be other moments where we're going to go, ooh, oh. It's going to be gut-wrenching, but it's going to be liberating. 
Because rather than driving us to despair, Solomon purposes through this revelation of truth, this reality check, this wake-up call, to move us to search for another source of fulfillment outside of this world, a source of living water, which if we drink it, we will never be thirsty again. So, let's begin. Let's begin to enter with Solomon into this stark contrast between life under the sun a life lived within the vicious cycles of nature that rise and set day after day, week after week, year after year until we die, and that contrast with the life under the sun. Life under the sun, a life that breaks the cycle, a life that is raised beyond death, a, a life that exists unto eternity. Let us recognize we cannot fully appreciate the gospel as good news, the best news, the greatest story ever told if we don't consider all the other stories, the fables, the legends, the myths, the best-selling formulas for human life and purpose. And let us, as we go through this, also keep this in mind. As believers... In Jesus, we are not pessimists. As believers in Jesus, we are not pessimists, but we are realists. We see the world as it is. We recognize our lives for what they are apart from God. We don't deny our brokenness. We don't ignore the consequences of the corruption of sin. We acknowledge the remedy to the vapor, the breath that is our lives is beyond ourselves. The solution to the futility of creation lies outside of this world. We as believers are not pessimistic. We are realists. We see the world as it is, but we also perceive the truth of the gospel, that heaven invades earth, that God becomes flesh, that God in Christ experiences and lives this life under the sun. Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with the heavy burden of this life. But thanks to what Jesus has done on the cross through the resurrection and the gift of Pentecost, we can envision a world as it will be, as it is becoming. So beloved, if we're looking to make a profit with our lives, let us not limit our sight to what this world offers because everything this world offers us by itself, it all adds up to nothing. Apart from God, none of this makes sense. But with God, in Christ, and through the Spirit, we can anticipate the day when Jesus will make what is crooked straight. When Christ will return to the earth and make all things new. Amen.